Uh, so last week we began a, a series in Galatians, and I, I kind of threw out a challenge to several of you, um, not as a, as a benchmark for whether you're good enough, but only as in a way for you to maybe um, cultivate more fruitfulness from these sermons, that, the, that what you hear on a Sunday has its place, but there's always th- things that you can do to enhance the experience and, and to get more out of it. And I said, maybe you could read it as many times as you can. And I know at this point, if you're reading it even several times this week, you're feeling very frustrated, like, gosh, how many times does he have to talk about circumcision? I thought this was a family show. Um, don't worry, we'll, we'll unpack that, so to speak. Um, but I also encourage, yeah. oh, wow, did I say that out loud? Well, I guess we're done. Um, but I also encourage you to, to, to think of ways in which you can express your, your thinking, your praying, your meditating. And I've, I've asked you to maybe write out your prayers and send them, and several of you have. And so, you know, keep those cards and letters coming. I love it. I don't know what we'll do with it, but it is, it is no waste. It is a good thing. And, and I also invited you to, to make even, you know, think out loud about how you might express yourself um, as you read through Galatians. Well, sure enough, the Grady family came up with an idea. They came up with a T-shirt. Um, uh, based upon my comment about um, if it is divine, um, then take the time. Um, and then in keeping with the illustration I made, they have a, a, a checklist on the back of it, um, a to-do list, one of which is um, buy toilet paper and then read Galatians. So, so there it is, right? Uh, the, the sky's the limit on the way you can respond to what you might be reading from Galatians. So um, consider yourself, the, the bar is even higher. It's even higher now, right? Okay. On that funny note, let's pray. Let me, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Bono, you may have heard of him. Um, uh, he's a rocker, he's a, um, a poet, um, he's an activist, um, and in many ways he's an evangelist for many things. And uh, he did an interview for Rolling Stone last month, kind of catching up with him. And uh, in the course of that interview, uh, we are all recalling the fact, and which, of which you may not have been aware, that um, Bono has had several brushes with death. And that's not metaphorically speaking in the last several years, um, whether it's diagnoses or accidents. Uh, he had a bike accident in Central Park. I mean, this man has come, had some pretty tough scrapes. And um, the interviewer, fortunately enough, is knowledgeable enough with Bono's history that he had the, the prescience or the, the, the wherewithal to ask him the question, how has your faith sustained you in those really real scrapes with death? And Bono says this, The person who wrote best about love in the Christian era was Paul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul. He was a tough uh, dude. Uh, Family show, trying to get my wife to kick the habit, so we had to edit it for content. Um, But uh, he's a a super intellectual guy, but he's fierce, and he has, of course, the Damascene experience, which you heard read earlier in the service. He goes off, lives as a tent maker. He starts to preach, and he writes this ode to love, which everybody knows from his letter to the Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind, love bears all things, love believes all things. You hear it at a lot of weddings. And then Bono gets autobiographical. How do you write these things when you are at your lowest ebb? Because I didn't. I didn't. I didn't deepen myself. I'm looking to somebody like Paul, who is in prison, and writing these love letters and thinking, how does that happen? It's amazing. Bono is awed by the fact that here is somebody named Paul who has scrapes with death all the time and as a consequence not of his recreation but his very vocation. He finds himself in prison and getting beaten up and getting maligned and still 
still there is something at his core that he is able to write and champion love. And Bono says, that's nuts. I want to be that guy. How does he get there? This Paul is the same guy whose letter we're listening to for all, of, all the way to Easter. Because I think all of us are implicitly maybe asking the same question Bono is. How can any of us be genuinely freed to love if all life does is lead you to a sequence of dark places? Because that's Bono's story. I mean, that's, that's Paul's story of which Bono was so amazed. We want to ask that. And we are asking that. And so this series is properly entitled Free. How can we be freed not just from certain things that we want to avoid, but freed for things? Namely, how can we be freed to love? And this morning, the, the, the tone of Paul's letter changes from the, from the doctrinal to really the autobiographical. And in the course of him unpacking his own story, Paul, I think, is going to give us an explanation of how to be freed to love is in many ways trying to understand the battlefield. That any military campaign in large respects is won or lost by the extent to which those who are fighting it understand the terrain. And for Paul to be freed to love, he has to understand those battlefields. And I think his explanation from his own story will help us understand those battlefields such that we might also know what it means to be free to love and how. And we're going to learn three battlefields upon which this battle lies. The battlefield of men, the battlefield of metrics, and the battlefield of meaning. There are three things that are very integrally related to one another, and we're going to consider each through the lens of Paul's own story. So if you're able, I wonder if you might stand. We're in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Galatians 1, starting in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were here last week, then you might notice that where he starts this week is, in a lot of respects, where he starts last week. In verses 11 and 12, he is there to tell us that this gospel that he has preached to the Gentiles, to these churches of Galatia and what is now southern Turkey, he didn't come up with this. He didn't sit under a tree waiting for illumination. He didn't deduce this from reading. He got smacked in the face by Jesus. And we know that because of what you heard earlier in the service from Acts chapter 9. He's becoming autobiographical here. And what you heard in Acts chapter 9 was in response to what happened in Acts chapter 7. Acts, you know the book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel according to Luke. And in Acts chapter 7, we find the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. He has a diaconal heart. He gives this very longish sermon to his fellow Jewish brethren. What they hear from him, they deem essentially blasphemous. They rise to pick up stones to end him right there in public. And before they do, they essentially look at Paul, who is then called Saul, as some sort of de facto authority in that moment, looking to him for approval. He gives it. They lay their robes at his feet. They grab stones and they put Stephen to death which provokes this more widespread outbreak of persecution against the church, which includes Saul. He gets authorization from the synagogues in Jerusalem to go round up these folks, men and women, who are part of the way, as it was called then, and on his way to Damascus in Syria. Again, a two-by-four to the face by Jesus himself, who says, why are you persecuting me? Interesting turn of phrase, right? He's persecuting the church. Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's at that moment that Saul is, shall we say, persuaded. That he is convinced, that he is converted to the possibility that Jesus is no charlatan, but that he is in fact worthy of all homage and worship and sacrifice and devotion and love. He is converted. And in that moment, Paul is explaining to the churches at Galatia what explains why he has come unto them. And it's with that background that we get to what Paul considers to be the first battlefield upon which the fight for freedom lies. And that battlefield is the battlefield of men. The reason I say that is that we, we come into this passage sort of mid-thought, right? He, he says, uh, you know... Um, um, Why am I out to please men? Am I out to please you? Which is like, okay, what is he talking about? Uh, You have to back up a little bit. At the end of last week's passage, uh, you might remember that Paul is saying, anybody that has come into your midst and is offering you a different version of the gospel than I gave you, they should be accursed. Not exactly the most friendly words. Not exactly the most diplomatic way of putting it, right? And even before that, Paul looks or writes to the Galatians and says, I am astonished. I am beside myself that you are deserting the one who called you to himself in Jesus. And Paul is just referencing, or referencing those two constituencies he's addressing, both the ones he'd rather see accursed, and these Galatians who he is just angry with. And he is asking them, does this sound like I'm trying to win friends and influence people? He is poking them in the eye. He is confronting them 
to their face, so to speak, through the written word. He is saying, does it really sound like I'm trying to ingratiate myself with you, that I'm really trying to please you? And, and you might wonder, why, why is he even talking about that? Because these other voices that have wandered into the regions where he had preached the gospel are coming to them and saying, you know what Paul did, right? Paul went to Jerusalem and heard all about Jesus, and then he comes to you, and he goes rogue on the message. He turns into a maverick, and he starts telling you what you want to hear. That's what Paul's doing. And Paul is sounding, saying, are you sure that I'm really out to please anybody by what I've said, given how forcefully and ferociously I've spoken? He's not out to defend himself, but he's out to get them to think, do you really think I'm out to please men given what I've just said to you. And it's here that we're kind of getting to the preaching point of this part. Paul is out to say to us, he could not be faithful to the message he was offering. He could not be faithful to the mandate he had come to fulfill if he had made it his ultimate aim to seek the approval of men. It doesn't work. It can't happen. It's a zero-sum game. Now, look, um, kids, when you're young, um, you're smaller than everybody. Uh, you don't know as much as everybody. Everybody's bigger than you. And for the most part, they know a lot more than you. Not always. But for the most part. And if you seek to please them, if you seek to do what they ask you to do, it will actually be for your good. Now, I know you kids are going, this can't be, can't be true. It's just, there's no way. There's no way. Do you know how ridiculous my parents are? Yes, yes, I do. But I am saying this. You will mature if you seek to please them by what they ask of you for the most part. Oh, we fail. We do it wrong. We have to apologize. I've had to apologize to my children this week. Absolutely. I got it wrong. But Lord willing, if you're part of a family where they have authority, if you will listen to them and seek their approval, you will mature. Paul is, though, making the point here That true maturity, true maturity is a matter of making the pleasure of God foremost in every relationship. In every relationship. The implication of that is this. In every relationship is a battlefield. Not that you are against them, not that you're at war with them, but that in every human relationship it is a battlefield because you are always in a battle of how you will see and respond to someone else. Because I'm not the first person to say in every human relationship you are motivated by either one of two things, love or fear. You will either seek to do them good out of love for them or you will be afraid of what you will lose if you don't do what they ask. That's fear. Either love or fear will be at work in any given interaction, in any given relationship. Paul is out to tell us by way of his own autobiographical account. The point of knowing him, the point of knowing Christ, is to realize that your greatest maturity will always be found in seeking to make the pleasure of God foremost in every relationship and in seeking to make his pleasure foremost. That's his point. Now, um, all of this sounds really out there, and it's, I know it's 2,000 years old. Let me, let me kind of put this in a, in a more modern frame. Um, there's a guy named Frederick de Boer. 
He's, um, he's an essayist. He's an academic. He, I think, most recently worked at the City College of New York. Um, I only started introduced to him a couple of years ago. He's really kind of a brilliant author. Spoke to a lot of questions, both within and outside of his field. But about uh, six or nine months ago, he gets into a, a Twitter fight with somebody. Um, they just go back and forth about something. And in the course of that really bitter exchange between the two of them, something, something falls apart in him. Something breaks. And he goes dark on Twitter, and he drops off all online communication, and it's through other parties that they say he checked into a mental institution for a season. Just something went wrong in the midst of that interaction. About six or eight weeks ago, he finally put out a post that kind of explained what had happened to him over the last six or nine months. Talked about all the medications that had helped kind of restore some sanity to him and all of the side effects that was going on that was actually making him insane. And and he was just sort of struggling with what to do next. And, And towards the end of that blog post, he says this, Sometimes I dream of another life, or really another me, A me who wasn't at war with myself and the things I would have written then. But I'm too old for that now. I can only move forward. If there is any virtue to getting to a place where you say to another human being, I cannot go on like this and I need help, it's that the part of you that cares for the opinions of other people dies. And however briefly you live unmediated, I would like to think I can access it again in times of better fortune. In his moment, in his context, he's talking about this inclination in himself to do everything he can to protect people's perception of himself such that that lingered for so long that it was killing him on the inside never to be honest because he so desperately needed others to think well of him. And it led him to a breaking point. That same inclination is in us all, if only in different contexts. It is seeking the approval of men that leads us to be dishonest about what is really going on in our hearts. But it is also seeking the approval of men that will create in us the inclination to only do what they ask because we're so afraid of what we might lose if we don't. The freedom to love is on the battlefield of men and you and I are all susceptible to it. And unless we know it's there, Unless we know where that battle lies, we will always be constrained by that inclination that is a default to us. Now the question is, how are we freed from it? Stick around. Because there's more to the story. Because there's more to Paul's story. The battle to be freed to love lies on the battlefield of men. But that is because that battlefield lies on an even larger battlefield. And that's the battlefield of what I'd like to call metrics. Measurements. As you might have heard in verse 13 and 14, Paul kind of goes into great detail about his history. And he speaks about what happened to him on the way to Damascus in so many words. And then he talks about his own experience as a Jew. And there's two things I want you to notice in those, those few verses in verses 13 and 14 that, that speak to the idea of metrics. And what I mean by that. The first one is this. As you know, before the church was barely off the ground, Paul was out to exterminate it. And then in time, he came to see the church and Jesus differently, such that not only did he not want to exterminate it, he wanted to see it spread. Now that is a dramatic transformation. But I know full well, and you know probably, there are particularly innumerable examples of people in history who, who undergo this profound transformation in the way they see things and their allegiances like shift 180 degrees. 
The thing about Paul is this. At one time, he wanted the church to die. But then at one point, he was willing to die for the church. But not to die in order to take out the enemies of the church. Not to die in order to shame the enemies of the church. But he was willing to die for the enemies of the church, if only that they might see the glory of the one who is the head of the church. That's different. That's nuts. Blaise Pascal was famously heard to say, I believe the witnesses, the martyrs who get their throats slit. And for Paul, that would be the case eventually and would be the possibility on so many occasions more than he could count. That's Paul's story. And that's why, if I might just take a sidebar for a moment, it is not nuts for us to pray for those who are in ISIS. There's an article on one of the online resources on the website this week about this sermon. It's an article from the New York Times a few years ago about the jihadi that turned to Jesus. If Paul is someone who was once a persecutor of the church, who then turns to one who preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, then it is not bonkers, even if it is counterintuitive, to pray for those who would most like to see the church expunged from the face of the earth. It's just not nuts. It's happened. It happens again. It happened then. It happens now. No, you're not crazy for praying in that direction. Because that's what happens. But for Paul, before he came to understand Jesus as he was, his metric, his measure, was the antipathy he had for the church. His zeal to see it over and ended was the metric of his life. And not just that metric. There was another metric even more remarkable in that little litany of things he rattles off about his own attainments within the, Jew- the Jewish faith. You, you, you hear that and you think he's kind of composing his college application. It's, it's kind of where he, he says he was advancing in Judaism. Meaning he was, he was excelling in his knowledge and his piety of all things related to the law of Moses. It says he was advancing beyond all his peers. Like he's become the Phi Beta Kappa of the, of the rabbinical class, the, the guy in the yearbook, most likely um, to be in charge of you from a pharisaical standpoint. And he's like, that guy, right? And, and that he's, he's, he's so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He's esteeming himself as one who has a command of what God has asked. And what he's saying is, in terms of Judaism, I was nailing it. Like, just nailing it. Why would he rattle that off? Because it sounds a little arrogant to even come off that way. Why is he doing it? For this reason. Because he's saying that all of it, all of it was what he had come to believe made him commendable to the Father. The whole shebang, the whole kit and caboodle, that form and demonstration of outstanding advancement was the metric of his life. And I don't mean to trivialize what he's speaking of here, or of the, of the content of my comment here, but there was, a, there was a, a, a cartoon that came out a few years ago in the New Yorker. It's of two monks sitting in their cell, and one says to the other, when I was making money, I made the most money. And now that I'm spiritual, I'm the most spiritual. Maybe that's what Paul's trying to get at. I was the most spiritual. Because everything had become an index. Everything had become a metric. And Paul is out to say that maybe he was wrong. In fact, he does say that because 
There is another letter in which Paul rattles off almost exactly the same litany of achievements in Judaism, and that's in his letter to the church at Philippi. And in that letter, at the end of the litany, he says this in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What he's saying is, what he thought made him commendable, he now saw as practically insubstantial, as almost weightless in the grand scheme of things. And what he's had to acknowledge is that until he could come to see that there was nothing in him, nothing by him that made him commendable to God, only when he saw that could he ever know the acceptance of God. And for those of you who are just joining us, I just told you what the gospel is. That until you and I can concede that we have nothing commendable in us, nothing commendable by or through us, until we see that, we can never know the acceptance of God because that acceptance is not one that we merit. It is something that we receive. That's the gospel. And it's also speaking to this notion of metrics. Like no other time in human history, Does humanity take such an interest in metrics? It is not so long before the 2018 Olympics happened, right? And on many of those timed events, they're going to measure the event down to the thousandth of a second because it will matter if you came in at 10.351 or 10.352. It will matter because we will want to know who's who won. What does that realize? What does that indicate? Not only that we are brilliant at precision in terms of metrics, but that we think metrics are so important. And we will find 10,000 things to measure. And we may not even realize it when we're doing it. You've probably measured a few things by the time you hit the door this morning and you don't even know why or what. Now, is there anything wrong with measuring things? Is there anything wrong with becoming aware of um, attainment or advancement or accomplishment? Is there anything wrong with that? No, unless the metric starts to mean more than the thing that you're measuring. Unless the metric starts to mean more than the thing that you're really measuring. Um, I am not the first person to have been really startled by this person's, this writer's very candid account of his own vocation and his propensity to measure and what effect it had on him. His name is Benjamin Nugent, and he wrote this in an article a few years ago about his writing. When good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. Is there a cost to measuring? Yes. In your own ability to pursue the very vocation you think you might have been called to. If you are constantly trying to figure out, am I worth anything? Am I good for anything? Rather than, is this work very good? You can't do good work, he's saying. Yeah. Metrics aren't a problem unless your metric is starting to mean more than that which you're measuring. And that doesn't even happen to happen at the personal level. It can also happen at the interpersonal level. Even from a parent to a child. 
A few years ago, David Brooks made this rather startling observation. Parents glow with extra fervor when their child studies hard, practices hard, wins first place, gets into a prestigious college. This sort of love is merit-based. It's not simply, I love you. It is, I love you when you stay on my balance beam. Children in such families come to feel that childhood is a performance. The shadowy presence of conditional love produces a fear The fear that there is no utterly safe love. There is no completely secure place where young people can be utterly honest in themselves. Parental love is supposed to be oblivious to achievement. It's meant to be an unconditional support, a gift that cannot be bought and cannot be earned. It sits outside the logic of the meritocracy. The closest humans come to grace. Is there anything wrong with spurring one another on to love and good works to do to steward their effort, nothing wrong with that. So long as you don't make the metric more than what it's actually measuring. Paul is saying to himself, to the churches at Galatia and to us, until you see that there is nothing commendable in you or through you, will you ever know of the acceptance of God? And that is because the only metric that will keep you from allowing your measuring other things to keep you from corroding you from the inside is not the measure of what you have done, but the measure of what Christ has done on your behalf. That's the gospel. That unless the measure of what Christ has done for you be the foundation for the way you think and the way you act and the way you love, you and I will inevitably find one million other things to measure ourselves by and to find our worth in that. And then the quality of your work will be the measure of your worth. And Paul is saying, welcome to hell. That's the battleground of metrics. The battle to be freed to love exists on the battlefield of men because that exists on the battlefield of metrics. And that battlefield of metrics is a problem or is a struggle because it exists on yet one other battlefield larger still. And that is the battlefield of meaning. When Paul speaks of us finding our goodness in Christ, he means that his very meaning is bound up with the meaning that God has given him. And when we talk about meaning, we talk about purpose and reason for being. And if you don't have any meaning... You really won't live for anything, or you'll, you'll feel like life is but a waste. And um, when we talk about meaning, a lot of people have different theories about where it comes from. Uh, whether meaning is even a category. Whether there is such a thing as meaning, or if it's just something we come up with, or, or create for ourselves, or, or, or bring us into an illusion so that we, we can get by. Some people think that our meaning comes from all of the choices that we make. Others will say that meaning has to come from outside of ourselves. that we have to, we have to discover something and, and let that become the meaning of our lives. And, and some people have been led to believe over time that um, you find your meaning when you understand that you're part of a larger story. Um, the very first sermon I shared with this church back in September, I quoted the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, who said this, you don't know how you ought to live until you know what story you're in. Until you know what story you're in, you don't really know what's right or wrong or what's proper or improper or what's timely or is untimely. Until you know what story you're in, you can't know how you ought to govern your life. 
Paul, there, starting in verse 15, rattles off a pretty long list of stuff that happened after his conversion. A lot of details that to us go, wow, why why are you sharing all that? Let, Let me explain to you why he's sharing it with the churches at Galatia. Just to go back to an earlier thought. The Galatians had been told that Paul is just coming to tell them what they want to hear. Because Paul has told them, the law of Moses, your obedience to it, is not how you get a seat at God's table. Which sounds great to Gentile ears. But to these other voices that have wandered into those churches, they're saying, Paul's just telling you what you want to hear. And so for Paul to rattle off this very long laundry list of stuff that's been going on ever since he was converted, he's there to remind the Galatians, look, I went to Jerusalem only long after I had been met Jesus. So I didn't go rogue on anything. This is what I'd been taught. You need to trust that the the authority with which I speak is the authority that was given unto me by Jesus himself. I have not gone rogue. I am not telling you what you want to hear. That's why he's telling the churches of Galatia that. But why is it significant for us? Why should we care about that all detail about first he sees Cephas and then he sees James and then he goes to Syria and Cilicia? Why do you care? Why should I care? I'll tell you why. Because when Paul says there in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, which should sound kind of familiar because when, I had, when we had the, you hear Jeremiah 1 this morning, what does God tell Jeremiah? I, I called you before you were born. I, I had this in mind before you were had breath. Uh, Paul is echoing that same sort of idea. That before he had set me apart, What is Paul saying? That he has come to understand himself as part of a story that over he had no control over. That he has come to understand that he is part of a story that he had no awareness of, that he couldn't contribute to, but which he nevertheless found himself in. And what is that story? That is the story of forgiveness of grace. A story that he could not have written for himself, but a story that he can no longer deny. Otto von Habsburg was the last emperor of Austria. He died in 2011. He would have been a contemporary of the Von Trapp family. These are a few of my favorite facts. (laughs) But when he died in 2011, he followed in the tradition of his forefathers when it came to his burial. The service was held at a cathedral in Vienna, and then his remains went on a cortege to an adjacent monastery where his remains would be interred with his forefathers. And in keeping with the tradition, his casket was led by an advocate of him. And that advocate comes to the door of the monastery and knocks. And a monk behind the door says, Who is there? At which point, the advocate reads off this long list of titles of Otto von Habsburg. Every title he had, it takes like three or four minutes. The, the YouTube link is in your online resources. I'd show it, but my Austrian is really rusty. But for three or four minutes, he rattles off all of these titles, all of the lands that he is the, was the emperor over. And when he finishes that, the monk behind the door says, never heard of him. So he knocks again. Doom, doom, doom. Monk asks, who is there? The advocate rattles off all of these lists of accomplishments. All of the things that he had done, all of the, all of the battles he'd won, all of the attainments he had. And he finishes and takes three or four more minutes, and the monk behind the door says, never heard of him. Third time, knocks on the door, tung, tung, tung. Monk asks, who is there? And the advocate says, it's Rudolph, a poor sinner. 
And the monk says, I've heard of him. He may enter. When Paul speaks of being set apart from before he was born, and by the grace of God being, having been shown Jesus because God was pleased to show him Jesus, Paul is saying, I have found myself in a story I had no idea was at work in me. I am finding myself in a story I had no idea was going on in the background. Paul is saying that he has come to discover that he is part of a story in which all of his moments are witnessed, in which all of his moments are surrounded. And he has been unhinged by that realization because he has found his meaning in that story. There's a a scene in the film Up, if you haven't seen it, that is one of two moments in that whole film that brings me to tears every time I see it, and there's not a bit of dialogue. If you know that story, um, old Mr. Friedrichsen, he and his wife had great dreams. They wanted to have children and they couldn't, and that was a, a sorrow to them. And then they wanted to have dreams of maybe moving to South America, and then she died older in life because all sorts of things happened and they kept a a journal of all that they had done and she has died and here he was out to to fulfill that dream of finally finding a place where he might you know build a home and and realize the dream that they had from when they were first married and that dream has now come crashing to an end and here he sits in the ruins of his house in the ruins of his own dream and he comes back to that album He thought he was in one story that had a certain glory to it, and then he discovers that he's actually part of a story that had its own glory to it, and he just didn't see it. And if you don't know that story, the the Boy Scout thing there is, he's been met a Boy Scout that he finds a little bit, shall we say, peevish every once in a while. But when he realizes of the story that he has been in and of its greater glory, he is freed to love that kid. And Paul is realizing that he is part of a greater story and that has freed him to love even at the cost and the expense of his own death. And the implications for you and for me is if you lost everything today, folks, everything you'd worked for, if you lost everybody you loved, the reason your life would still have meaning is because that meaning is bound up with the God who gave it meaning and gave you life. And never has that been proven more true than the way in which this same God, this same God, let one murder those whom he considered beloved and forgave him and called him and changed him and commissioned him to service and invited him into a different story. If that is true, can it also be true of us? I believe it can. And not because of what I say, but because of what Paul's story tells us and what Jesus' story more so tells us. So when Bono asks the question, I'm looking to somebody like Paul who was in prison and writing these love letters and thinking, how does that happen? How does it happen? It happens when you are met by the story of a God who will let a murderer be forgiven, let a persecutor turn into a preacher of the faith he once tried to destroy. And if he can do that, for Paul, then surely he can do it for those who want people's approval too much, who look at too many other things to be the metric of their worth rather than his metric, 
and to try to find their meaning in everything other imaginable other than the meaning that God gives them in himself. That's Paul's story. The one to which Bono looks with a proper awe, which is nothing compared to the way in which he looks to the story of Jesus, to whom he also looks with a proper awe, as might we. Let's pray. Father, would you by your grace and through your spirit help us to reflect on what keeps us from love right now? In what ways we are constrained from loving? And if it be because of what we want too much from those whom we might rightly appreciate and be responsible for, or whether it is we have come to despair of anything of every way in which we might be failing or, or failing to measure up, or, or if it might be because we are looking for our meaning in something other than what you have done, I, I pray that you would show us that clearly, but not just to expose us, but more so to show us why your approval, your metric, your meaning does satisfy, does support. Would you help us, sir? Through Christ by the Spirit, I pray. Amen.